I didn't originally want to attend an HBCU. I did want to attend Xavier University. Um, it's a family tradition. Both the pharmacists and my family attended Xavier. I was so excited. And then I got to my senior year and we got the bill that even with the scholarship, it would be very expensive. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Dapper Dollars Podcast, where we answer your finance questions, but with fit style. My name's Nirvan Bomek, and my co-host is... Hi everyone, I'm George Anakwe. So we're here to talk about the HBCU experience. So HBCU stands for a historically black college and university. So this is a near and personal episode for myself. Um, having left the sunny shores of Manchester and moved to um, Houston uh, for my MBA, I graduated from Texas Southern University MBA class of 2018. And I'll say it was quite an experience. And whenever I still go in rooms and people talk about their HBCU experience, I notice like not a lot of people sort of know what that is about. And this is hopefully, we're, we're here to kind of present a very insightful and thought-provoking conversation around this. So please stay tuned and listen. And today we have the pleasure to introduce Dr. Trimani Brock. She's a recent graduate of Texas Southern University College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences. She completed her two-year residency at Medical University, South Carolina, where she served as the first African-American PGY2 chief resident. She's currently an inpatient pharmacy supervisor at UTMB at Clear Lake. And fun fact that she was in the Russian Nutcracker as a dancer. And on her free time, she enjoys the performing arts. So welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. To get us started, we're going to start with a fun icebreaker. So what's that one guilty pleasure item that you like to buy and not even bother looking at the price tag? Ooh, food. I will go to a restaurant and I will order everything that my little heart desires and I will eat myself crazy after a long day and not even look at the price tag. I will just deal with the bill when it comes. I'm a foodie. I'm from Louisiana and I must say, I think we have the best food. So I'm a foodie. I'm a sucker for a really nice restaurant. So after a long day, I will go and sit down and I will want to taste everything under the sun. So I'm definitely that. That would definitely be my guilty pleasure. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Well, um, thank you. Thank you so, so much, so much for um, joining us here. So I guess I'll kick off. Um, so I know we and both went to um, TSU, so go tight tie, I guess. And I want to sort of ask you, um, so what inspired you to want to attend a HBCU? Um, so I know most people I sort of have conversations with is more like a legacy experience. Maybe they have like like a parent who went to a HBCU. So can you kind of share what inspired you? Yeah, so my uh, we actually grew up in Louisiana. I am a native of Baton Rouge, Louisiana. My dad moved us here um, in 2013. So I actually moved to Texas a year and a half before I graduated high school. And for me, um, I didn't originally want to attend an HBCU. I did want to attend Xavier University. Um, it's a family tradition. Both the pharmacists and my family attended Xavier. I was so excited. And then I got to my senior year and we got the bill that even with the scholarship, it would be very expensive. So we began touring different universities um, in Texas because I had dual residency at that point. So I could have went, went to school in Louisiana or I could have went to school in Texas. And either way, I would have been able to pay in-state tuition. So we started touring schools and we toured several. Um, and it was okay. But I think when I got on the campus of Texas Southern University, it felt like a family. It was so natural. You know, they were so open. They allowed my mom to ask all of the invasive, crazy questions that only my mother would ask. I believe she asked about boys being allowed in the girls' dorm room. She asked about the sexually transmitted disease rate. I mean, she asked so many invasive questions that they were able to laugh off and really just embrace the fact that she was a mom and her oldest was leaving. I think as it got closer to time to me um, moving to Houston, I started to really dig deep into the importance of HBCUs. Um, my grandmother actually was the first African-American woman to integrate Southeastern Louisiana University. My grandfather was the first African-American male to join the basketball team in his high school. So we have a really big legacy of groundbreaking um, people in my family. So I wanted to learn more about myself, about my legacy, about the contribution and the education of African-Americans. And Texas Southern was just 
they were such a light. They gave me, you know, a really big scholarship. They gave me an opportunity. And so that's really what drew me into the HBCU experience. I agree. I agree. I, I think it is. And I think the same thing for myself because I have three, three uncles who actually went to HBCU. So why I even decided to come to HBCU for, for an MBA? My uncle actually ran one of the the most successful, like, you know, businesses uh, in, in 99M Jujuri. So having that exposure, like, hey, you went to HBCU and you got all this financial knowledge impacted into you. I thought, okay, yeah, so I decided to come in. So you sort of speaking to the fact that, you know, it was also inspirational for you to come to a HBCU it does make sense. So thank you. I appreciate that. First of all, that's amazing that your, what your legacy has gone through and like that you're continuing that. Um, one of the kind of curiosities that you also brought up the um the the topic scholarships so because you've had this legacy uh were you kind of inbred into hey this is how it's done and i should apply for scholarships or did they reach out to you for these scholarships how did that process look like so um my mother's an educator she's been an educator our entire lives and in my family college is a destination it's not really an option so it's something that everybody has to do so at the summer of my junior year we started applying for scholarships and we quickly realized that a lot of them were need-based and your need as a high school student is dependent on your parents income so although my parents you know they were comfortable um, ideally in the eyes of the government or in, a, in the eyes of a lot of like the financial contribution calculators, my parents should have been able to give me forty dollars to $50,000 a year to go to college. But realistically, they had moved back and forth from Louisiana a couple of times and I have two younger siblings. So we actually started applying for scholarships very early. I spent hours applying for the Bill Gates scholarship, which as you know, they will cover your tuition throughout your doctoral degree experience. Um, and I didn't get any. So when it came time to apply for Texas Southern, um, they were able to offer me scholarships, but it still didn't really hit the nail on the head. Like there was still a financial need there. And my father really believed that I had the intellect and the aptitude to go out there and get funding. Um, so I remember sending a very long email to Miss Linda Coach Riley. She was at the time, um, I think she was over the scholarship department at the Texas Southern University um, Thomas F. Freeman Honors College. And I sent her a long email about, you know, the importance of me attending college. And I'm just, you know, X amount of dollars away from being able to attend. And I have no way to make up the money. But if you find a way for me to get the funding, I will spend every day at Texas Southern making you understand why you made the right choice. And TSU gave me the funding. And I went there. And in my first year, I met with the dean of students and the president. And I ended up getting the presidential scholarship my next year. And every year after that, I found a way to, you know, join an organization or be able to be um, an advocate for my university and find other ways to get scholarships and finances. Um, because I went to pharmacy school, I still graduated with a considerable amount of debt, but there wasn't a single year at Texas Southern University where I wasn't able to get a scholarship, a grant, or some sort of funding from my university. And I think it really speaks to the amount of assistance and the amount of support you get at an HBCU. You know, I wasn't just a number in a classroom. My professors knew me. They wanted to see me succeed. They told me about other opportunities to study abroad or to go and get internships that would in turn lead to me being able to finance my college career. Um, so I knew about scholarships. I, I knew how to get out there and get them. But my university played a really major role in making sure that I had the proper funding to not only get from year to year, but to get to graduation. I, I mean, I think that's just a great uh, lesson for all the listeners that, you know, like I was happy that you were really transparent about mentioning about the Bill, uh, the Bill Gates scholarship. It's like, hey, I didn't get it. But like looking at your background, it's very impressive and you would think like almost anybody with your background would like easily get it, but you'd still like persevered and like pushed hard and then also found your other opportunities where you can cover other expenses to subsidize your, your schooling. So I think that just shows it to like for all listeners, like just keep pushing hard and hard until you can get that result that you've been always cheating for. Yeah, I agree. And I, and I think also for some, because, you know, like she said, she wanted it and she, she went for, for, for it. I think a few people don't actually have that drive. But I feel, you know, there's so many resources where that, you know, you can actually go and do VM search on and ask questions about. And, you know, you get to find like ways where you can apply and, you know, like information that you, you thought you never knew 
wasn't there, but that's actually there because I, I agree. I graduated with, with an MBA with zero debt, and you know that really helped because I was really involved in getting ac- access to information on like scholarships, on grants, and stuff like that. So that helps. I agree. Awesome. So I guess we kind of go to the to the next part. I know you know um, I never went through like this long introduction on your bio. Bio, you've got an impressive you know, um, resume so far. But what people don't know is that you was actually uh, a former Miss TSU. And, um, and you know, it's just like you're someone who I've known who you are comfortable having so many hats on and you do a good job balancing the whole thing. And so with that, I knew, because uh, we worked to um, get, get together on this, you were actually an ambassador for the student academic support services. And... We know HBCUs kind of be, they are a platform where a lot of students with low income backgrounds and sometimes first time co-em, co-enlage attendees, they come and they want to have a shot at like succeeding in life. And can you share a little bit on the impact of that pro-em ground? Yeah, so um, I come from a very highly educated family. I mean, my... My grandmother, my maternal grandmother, was able to go to college. All of her siblings went to college. All her kids went to college. Um, my father's um, parents actually stopped um, formal education in the sixth grade. They were raised in Mississippi at a really, really tough time for African Americans, and so they still instilled in all of their kids and all their kids' kids and all their great grandkids like, you got to go to school, you got to get an education, even if not for you, for the fact that the people before you were not afforded the opportunity, right? So for me. I forever felt indebted to Texas Southern and I felt like there was going to be someone that came behind me that needed to know it's possible. They needed to know that it was able to get done, that you really have to push forward. And I always tell people, like, see where you want to be in the future and work backwards. So when I got to TSU, I had a whole lot of complaints. There was a lot of things I didn't like, a lot of things I wanted to change, a lot of things I was like, no, it should be this way. And I remember Doc, um, Dr. William Saunders, he was the dean of students at the time. I remember him, I went into his office and he was like, you know, you got a lot to say, but I think that you possibly have a really good way to work through it, so let me get you involved. So as a sophomore on campus, I served on the Board of Regents and it really allowed me to see how universities work, you know, how funding works, how, you know, the state decides what funding looks like at these universities. So for me, being a part of the Student Academic Success Center and being able to work alongside you and so many other, you know, empowering individuals allowed me to have direct connections to students, to know what the issues were, to know what the day-to-day looked like for them, to know what problems they were going home with. I may be able to afford school, but I don't have food every day. You know, I may be able to go to school, but I'm a first generation college student. No one taught me time management. No one taught me money management. No one told me that you were going to hand me a $20,000 check as an 18 year old college freshman. And I know my mom at home really needs this money to take care of my siblings. Or I really want a car. You know, I like the look of the red, you know, the red charger and the challenger. And so a lot of those on the ground things that I learned from being involved, being Miss Texas Southern, allowed me to utilize those positions to go to administration and say, no, we need a program that's going to hold their hand their first freshman year. We need a program that's going to allow them to pick a degree plan that's going to be fruitful and forthcoming once they graduate. You know, we need mentors. We need people to have open discussions with them. A lot of kids come into college and life doesn't stop. So you're still dealing with family death. You're still dealing with childhood trauma. You're dealing a lot of issues that happen on on college campuses cause lifelong trauma. You know, I worked with the police department on sexual assault and ways to prevent that and rape prevention and human trafficking. I got to work with all of these departments because I would meet a student and that was their story. I would be in the elevator with someone and that was their story. Or, you know, I would be at a recruitment event and I would have a parent come up to me and tell me, you know, her child grew up in Chicago on the South Side and Texas Southern saved her child's life because she had already, you know, lost a child to gun violence. So a lot of the positions that I took, I took very personally. A lot of times my classmates didn't understand it. My professors did, though. They knew that I was on a mission. So sometimes I had to FaceTime into class. Sometimes I knew that I was going to go to class from 8 to 5, but I had to do a recruitment event from 6 to 8. And then I knew from 8 to 10 I had to go to the library to study. So I knew when I woke up at 6 a.m. that it was going to be a long day, but it was worth it for me because a lot of those students I was able to meet and connect with, they were able to learn so much from my position, and I learned so much from them to where those programs 
are are pivotal at HBCUs because you have a lot of students coming in that are underprivileged or underfunded or first generation. And they need those programs to know how to be a college student and how to be an adult. So a lot of people would say like, oh, my goodness, how do you do it all? Like, I'm a woman of faith. So I pray every day and I have a huge support system. I mean, my family is absolutely phenomenal in the way that they show up to support me. They fed me a lot of days. You know, they would come and see me and they understood like she's physically here for Thanksgiving, but we know that she's working on her next big project or she just needs to sleep because she has to get up and study. And so I think coming from the background I come from and being able to connect with people personally allowed me to leverage those positions in a way that would be beneficial for others. Wow, that, that is awesome. And I, I mean, I'll, I'll say, I used to see her like have her, her Miss TSU sash and, you know, 8, 8 a.m. She's like having speeches in front of like hundreds of students and stuff. So it was really impressive. So I guess, you know, you said you had to bring that idea, like sell, sell, sell that idea. Do you feel it's something that can be rolled out on a national scale in terms of just the um, the impact that had because I, I I was part of it so I saw the impact which is awesome so do you think you know that's something that can be rolled out to a national state because we talk about you know the wealth gap and I feel it's teaching skill sets from an early age like you start to kind of understand things and so do, do you mind sharing a perspective on them that too as well yeah so I think um the wealth gap is a really huge conversation. I'm glad that we're actually beginning to have it in a more equitable manner because I think a lot of times people think it's a decision. And I believe going before I went to an HBCU, I thought it was a decision. Like I knew when I was a little girl, I wanted to be rich, right? Like I wanted to be rich. I wanted to walk in a store and I want all four purses and all six colors, right? And to me, I thought that that's what wealth was. Like I thought that it was having the the monetary needs to ensure that you, your kids, you know, your husband, everyone is taken care of. It wasn't until I got to college I realized like life sometimes determines things for you. Like sometimes you you don't get to decide what your upbringing is. You don't get to decide when you don't get that scholarship and you have the intellect and the will to get through school, but you just absolutely can't afford it. So it pigeonholes you into only being able to do certain types of jobs. You know, it wasn't until the last five years I've seen a boom in entrepreneurship of black and brown people. You know, I, I think the resources are now there for us to be able to to play big ball. You know, we're able to hand um, sit at the table and really learn more things. So I think when we talk about the wealth gap, I think it does need to be on a national level. But I think we need to start having honest conversations. One thing I always say, universities will always brand new degree programs, but we got to look at the return on it. Like we, we have to start to look at, you know, we may have a recording industry management degree. We may have a degree in interior design, but are we partnering that with an MBA? Are we now creating a five year program where you have, you know, a foundation in business? You just decided that you were going to do a focus or a minor in art. You're going to do a minor, you know, in public speaking or a minor in theater, because ideally, realistically, when you get out of college, Student loans are knocking on your door. So you want to be able to walk away with not just the moment of having a degree, but how can I now translate this into a steady income and translate that steady income into um, wealth? Because that's another big thing I'm learning now. I'm a full-time pharmacist. And even for me, sometimes I look and I'm like, why am I paying back all this stuff? It's because as a college student, I made some very unwise financial decisions and choices because it was survival, right? We came into college and you always thrived on survival. And I think, you know, the African-American community, it's survival. Like, I'm going to go and take this payday loan because I have to make sure that my kids and my family eat. Or I'm going to go and take this big lump sum. Or here's come Christmas time. I'm going to put all these gifts on layaway and I may spend the next six months paying it off. But at least my kids are going to smile. I don't think that as a community, we discuss delay gratification. I don't think we discuss, you know, paying down bad debt. We don't really discuss credit. Right. So even now I'm like trying to hurry up and pay off all this stuff that I didn't really think about in college. And my parents were really big on don't get a credit card. Don't get a credit card. Me being a 17 year old college student, I'm like, um, I like Macy's. I like Kohl's. I like Victoria's Secret. And I know I have this student job, so I'm going to be able to pay these minimum payments. And then that one semester where you're not able to work, you don't really think about it. So I think when we talk about the wealth gap, I think those are conversations that needs to you need to have like kind of in middle school. Like once kids start learning the value of a dollar, you really kind of have to start discussing how the economy works, how debt works, how credit works. College. Great. It's a wonderful thing. But sometimes community colleges are looked down upon 
But if I can go to community college for two years and I can do the same prerequisites for a third of the cost and possibly get it fully paid, we need to start funneling some students to that route. Because then you're coming into the big universities and now you can afford it. Now you've had two years to be at a junior college or a community college. And sometimes the maturity isn't there for kids to go straight from high school to college. So they go straight from high school to college and they flunk out in a year because we're praising the fact that they got accepted into this great university. When sometimes we know that they need that in between of the community college, which would also help them to start to build wealth. Right. Now your classes are set up around your, your work schedule. So now you can work while you're in school so you don't need to take out as much debt. So I think it's definitely something that can be rolled out nationally. I think nationally the focus needs to change from college admissions to how are we making sure this is an equitable decision? How are we making sure that we're going to college and providing degrees with a return on investment? To where when you graduate, you can translate it into whatever you want. Like pharmacy is not my first love. Pharmacy is not my passion. I knew pharmacy was going to pay the bills and was going to allow me to live comfortably to fuel my passion and do my hobbies. And I had the work ethic. So I knew if I had to work a nine to five for five years, I'm going to work that nine to five, but I'm coming home. And from five to nine, I'm working on whatever my next passion is. And so I think changing the conversation and really changing the focus and, and really just starting to improve upon the way we communicate that to the younger generation, I think that's really how we start to solve the issues of the wealth gap. Hey, I mean, I can see why you want Miss TSU because like, you're speaking <laughs> like a <laughs> That's like a perfect answer. Uh, I mean, just very inspirational for not only like to our listeners, but like the broader community. Um, you know, you mentioned about that program that you've done um, back in TSU. How are you kind of applying some sort of something similar right now at your current job? So I'm working on it. I think that I got to a point in residency where I was tired and I have never like I hadn't been tired in so long because I got so used to like running full speed ahead. So in this season, I spent the last six months like sitting down, <laughs> um, you know, just in prayer, just in reflection, figuring out like, what is my next step and what does it look like? Because there's several things I'm passionate about, but how can I now turn that passion into fueling some sort of income? So I spent a lot of time, um, my little sister started a dance program at her school. And so I spent a lot of time mentoring those young girls. They're fifth graders. So I spent a lot of time with them, talking them through, really trying to understand where the need is. Um, I do a lot of giving back to Beaumont ISD. My mother works for Beaumont ISD. So um, a lot of times the kids will come in and like during Christmas time or when it's time for the carnival and fair. They don't really have the funds to participate. Um, I'm also an adjunct professor in the College of Pharmacy. So I teach a class that prepares them for postgraduate opportunities. We look at CVs. We look at letters of intent. We talk about the real world. We talk about challenges for HBCU graduates. We talk about the pharmacy career spectrum and what it looks like five to 10 years from now and why you still have to go out and find some other sort of certifications um, just to really be able to break even. So in this season, I've kind of sat down. I am working on something for next year. I'm trying to start a nonprofit to get to those kids in middle school, get to them in high school and really talk about college. You don't want to do college. OK, what do we want to do? What are you passionate about? You know, what can you get certifications for? A lot of trade jobs are paying six figures now because we've somehow as a society tilted the conversation to college and we've glorified, you know, the degree, the four year college, the walking across the stage. When a lot of those kids walk across the stage into to hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. So just out of curiosity, like a after you going through the whole pharmacy program, also residency, and you said there's a lot of debt accumulated. So what has the ROI kind of looked like um, after obtaining your doctorate in pharmacy and getting that job postgraduate training? Yeah, so I will say um, I came out of pharmacy school highly qualified. A lot of the positions and leadership roles I took at Texas Southern, they were outside of the College of Pharmacy, but they were translational skills. Like I was student regent, so I got used to budgeting and, and talking to, like about those hard conversations and being the only female in the room. Um, as Miss TSU, I got used to recruitment, so I could talk. It was very easy for me you know, to go into a room and convince people of things um, and 
and get things done. So when I graduated, I did match on the first round to residency. I did a two year admin residency where my first year was highly clinical and my second year was focused on administration. Um, and I did not have to worry about a job. So the return on investment has been very impactful for me, but it wasn't because I went to college. It was because I maximized my time when I was in school. Um, I don't think it was because I went to pharmacy school or it was because I did residency. It was the things I did while I was there, the connections I made, the people I worked with, the situations I was put in, the projects I worked on, the connections that I was able to then translate into um, leadership skills and knowledge. So I think the return on investment has been great, but I don't want the viewers to think because I went to pharmacy school and then because I went to residency, you got a job because that's not true. I know several people that go to pharmacy school, they go to residency and they don't. You got to maximize out of that. You have to join the organizations. You got to go to the national meetings. You got to spend the long hours connecting, understanding. You know, sometimes I had to spend time just with nursing. Spend time with the physicians. It was outside of pharmacy. It wasn't a part of my residency year. It wasn't a part of expectations, but it allowed me to understand how they thought, right? What was important to them. As a pharmacy manager, these are the situations I need to leverage. I would actually go during residency um, to see the light at the end of the tunnel. I would go on LinkedIn and I would Google qualifications. You know, I would look at what do they want their pharmacy manager to look like? What do they want to make sure the experiences that I get? And I would bring it back to my RPD. Hey, I need you to throw me into a situation like this. I need you to put me on a project that looks like this. Because a year from now when I'm looking at jobs, they're going to want to see that I know how to move my way around. Like, I want you to give me autonomy to make some mistakes and missteps. Let's discuss it and then put me in a different situation again to figure it out. So I think the ROI is what you make it, right? It's what you put into it. And you can't put in the bare minimum. Texas has 13 pharmacy schools, meaning that for every job you're applying to, it's likely 50 to 100 other people applying to that same job, meaning there's about 3,000 graduates coming out every year. So it's not always a money game because you may want 60 an hour, but I got somebody over here that's going to take 55. I'm going to go with the 55. You know, it's not always that. Sometimes it's, it's leveraging what you know. It's getting in that interview and letting them see the skill set and the experience that I have are going to be an asset to your company. And this is why you want me. So I may have to you may have to pay me my 60, but you know what you're going to be getting, you know, from it. So I think the ROI has been what I've made it. Um, I'm still not satisfied. So I'm still trying to figure out what my next step is going to be. But I think in this day and age, it's who you know, like it's the experiences that you have. Like I want a soldier that's had a couple of bullet wounds, right? Somebody that's been through a, a couple of tours. I don't want just the fresh, pristine. And I say that because a lot of people think a 4.0 GPA walks you into those opportunities. And that's not true. You want to have those people skills. You got to have those soft skills now because pharmacy is changing. It looks very different. It's highly clinical now. You know, so we're rounding with the team. We're talking to patients about getting their medications with us instead of going out to their local CVS or Walgreens. Um, so it's important to be able to leverage those skills while you're building your career, while you're in school. I'm so glad you mentioned about the networking aspect is so important because I've seen so many people they're really bright, but then they get themselves in a position where it's, you know, maybe it's like very prestigious, but then they just kind of, you know, sit quietly and then they think that everything's going to come to them because maybe in the past they've always been spoon fed, but it's not about that. It's the person who's hustling hard and who's person who's meeting and greeting with a lot of people, because first of all, it's of course the opportunities, but also I think if you approach networking as, a, hey, you're going to learn something new because this person has a different background. Everybody has their own unique story. And then that will really lead you to not only the curiosity, actually a like genuine connection, but then the eventually the opportunity of whatever can come from that, you know, that person. And it doesn't necessarily have to become uh, like something beneficial for you, but it's a good connection to have. Right. And that will open up the door. I definitely tell students that I, I was not the 4.0. I was the 3.8. I was the 3.5. Like I, I, I think, and, and it, it, yeah. And it, it, it bothered me for like the first year and a half, two years, because I felt that my classmates just truly didn't understand the mission and the purpose that I was on. So I was always getting side eyes like, oh, she's about to walk out again. Cause I would literally have to go to class with a white coat and put my crown next to me in class and, and communicate with the professors ahead of time. Like when, when this class ends at 8.50, I gotta be out of here. Cause I gotta be on the other side of the Tiger Walk 
HPE at 9 a.m. to give a speech for Tyke. And my, my, they were really understanding, but my, my classmates weren't. Like, it kind of confused them how we're here at the school, you know, 18 hours a day. Tremani's never here and she's still passing. So it made people think, oh, she's being dishonest. She's cheating. Like, they're passing her. My professors were not passing me. It was just, I knew I was going to have a 12-hour day. I knew that meant that I was going to have to stay up eight hours. So there were so many nights where I would wake up at 6 a.m. and I would be up till 4 a.m. and do it again. Just because like my, my, my education was so important to me, but my passion was too. Like I would break my foot to make sure that I was everywhere I needed to be, that I didn't leave until the session was over, the program was over, every student got their question answered. Knowing that, oh my goodness, I'm gonna have to be up all night. And I had a really good set of study friends. My two friends, Good Luck and Chris, carried me through pharmacy school because they would know that Tremani wasn't gonna get to the library until 9.30. But we're gonna stay here and make sure that she understands. And they were in it with me. Like, they knew that I had sessions. They knew that I had events. They knew that there were so many things I was trying to accomplish that that was their way of supporting me. Like, they would be done with studying and would wait till I got there to make sure I understood the work, to tutor me through it if I didn't, or to just let me vent and cry. Cause like a lot of times, like the pressure really got to be a lot. And so I think, you know, having those little people in the corners that were just like cheering me on and working with me behind the scenes gave me the confirmation of I'm doing the right thing. It doesn't look right to other people that don't understand it, but the work is getting done. And I still graduated, right? Like I was still graduated. I was one of five students to match for residency. I still was able to walk into a job. And I just had to be understanding of the fact that not everyone is going to understand the way that you do it. But when you're fueling your passion and you know you're on a mission, you got to keep going because it's not really for everybody else to understand. Hey, if you made it this far into this episode, George and I want to give you a big thank you. It means a lot to us that you find our content valuable. And it will mean the world to us if you can share this episode with your family and friends. That would help this episode and future episodes discovered by many others who find this as valuable as you did. Again, thank you, and let's get back to the episode. I agree. And, and you know, like I tell a lot of um, mentees who um, reach out to me, I say, hey, your GPA in truth is just table stakes. I mean, it's expected. You're, you are a student. So a lot of people focus on, I have to have that 4.0. But in truth, it's just you need to start to build those critical skills, the soft skills that, I mean, you can maybe pull out an Excel report, but how do you communicate how do you lead with influence like things like you have to actually start to focus and scale up on so yes i appreciate you sharing that because a lot of people still have that misconception that you have to just focus on school but you have to also also critically build yourself up in so many ways as well so i appreciate that uh, I, I guess this all goes into our next question because you know i appreciate you really being um candid with your experience but again i think that's why we we, we we reached out and one thing i wanted to ask was um so what would you share in terms of what would you tell students who are looking to hey say uh who are thinking i want to be part of i want to go to a hbcu i want to experience that or people students who are thinking i want to transfer to a hbcu just to go experience that so from what you went through i mean you spoke about you from beginning till end um can you share some sort of advice on what they should do? Go do it. Uh, dig into why. I think um, I did not want to attend an HBCU. Um, I went to school in a pretty rough part of Baton Rouge, and I was afraid initially to attend an HBCU. I was very concerned and worried, and I got there, and it was the best experience of my life. I mean, I learned more about myself, my heritage, my people, the importance of my people, my confidence. I learned more in that first year at an HBCU than I had learned in 13 years of traditional schooling. And I think that speaks a lot to our society. That speaks a lot to our education system. And so I think if you're looking for an, an opportunity to be to feel important, to feel valued, to build genuine connections, to meet lifelong friends, to be supported from the moment you walk in the door, accountability, life lessons. If you're looking for an inclusive experience of what college should be like for every individual in this country, go to an HBCU. I mean, it literally just submerges you in history. You get to walk on the same path that some of the most influential people in our culture or our fight for civil rights have walked. Like, 
I study so much about Barbara Jordan and Mickey Leland and I learned so much. I'm a proud member of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated and just knowing that I came through the same chapter she came through, like being able to go to the museum and, and hear her story, being able to really dive into the fact that a lot of our civil rights leaders and a lot of the people that really led the charge of African-American history were the same age I was in college also gave me that other spark to be like, age is really never a limitation to what you can accomplish. I think, though, you got to balance it. One thing that people always misconstrue is that HBCUs are party schools. And let me debunk that. I have went to several SEC schools. I went to several PWIs. And let me tell you, they party party. They just have more money to party. An HBCU experience is going to be what you make it. Yes, it is very possible for you to have somebody that does hair, somebody that sews clothes, somebody that make beats on the same, you know, block as you when you're standing in your dorm. But those are going to be the same people waking up at 8 a.m. and going to class and paying out of pocket and working full time. Those are going to be the same people that you sharing your last your last bag of noodles with at three o'clock in the morning, you know, and it was great for me to be able to experience that. It was wonderful to, you know, party with these people, but also be in deep conversations at four o'clock in the morning with future lawyers and doctors and, and, and medical professionals and entrepreneurs and artists and writers. Like those random days at Texas Southern were the most impactful for me because it would be those conversations in front of the Tiger Walk of something that was bothering us. It would be us having to come together to go down to the state to beg for funding to keep our university open. You know, it would be, okay, another black man got killed. What are we going to do about it? How are we going to talk about it? What does that look like on our campus? How does that trigger the student body, right? Like having conversations with the administration of the emotional burden of being a black or brown person in this country and going to my university and enjoying the fact that I now feel a part of something but not getting too comfortable because I know in four years this comes to an end and I now have to be faced with the tools and resources to, to go outside. And that's one thing I can definitely say. I took an African-American studies class for the first time in my life. And Dr. Michonne Benson taught me how to utilize my HBCU experience as fuel and as a resource to call out inequities, to make sure that when I walk into the room, I didn't get the job because I was the brown face and you met a quota. I got the job because of my experience and what I'm able to do and what I can leverage. And so I think the HBCU experience is like none other. I appreciate the fact that in the last two to four years, we're getting more funding. People are now like calling out how enjoyable it is, but we're not new to this. Right. Like HBCUs have been around for a very long time. And if we don't continue to have the same support, equity in funding, they'll be a thing of the past. And I think that's 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 really what fueled my experience as a student, knowing that I could very possibly be living in the last days of a legacy. Like I could possibly be, you know, experiencing something that my kids may never get to. Um, and it was also being a part of that history. Like it's nothing like the HBCU experience, homecoming and hump days and, you know, convocations and being able to all get together and celebrate the fact that, yeah, outside of these four walls, people may see us as a threat. But in here today, in this moment, I'm going to enjoy what it feels like to just be valued as another, you know, law-abiding citizen as something, somebody a part of such a beautiful community. So if anybody, black, brown, white, indifferent, is thinking about the HBCU experience, go. I mean, I met so many other cultures. I learned about so many other cultures at my HBCU that I would never have known. Like I would have never understood, you know, what it was like. I met a lot of students from the Middle East. I met a lot of white students that had so many questions. And the HBCU gave us a, a comfortable and safe environment to have a discussion about race, to talk about how some things are innate. Sometimes they walk into privilege and don't know it, right? And my HBCU gave me the platform to have those conversations in a non-emotional manner that allowed them to equally be able to express how they were feeling. You know, that 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 presidential election was a big one. And I don't even got to say which one it is, because y'all know which one it is. And we got together with the University of Houston and we had an open discussion about what, what made us afraid, about what made them afraid, about how race really fueled and shaped what the country looked like for those four years. And I don't think had I not attended an HBCU, I don't think I would have ever understood it because we lived in the suburbs. 
So a lot of the, the racial injustice that were going on, we, we didn't experience as children. My parents did, but we really didn't know. So it wasn't until I got to an HBCU that I was like, oh, racism is still a thing? Oh, okay. And I, I had to lean into the way that it was done. I had to lean into the fact that all the surrounding universities get billions of dollars in funding. And my university for the first time in since the since the inception of my university, we got ninety million dollars and they called it they called it historic. But right across the street, they got three billion. Right? So I had to look into what underlying tones were there and what was the purpose of my institution and the fact that nobody thought HBCUs would thrive and live this long. You know, HBCUs were just a containment environment at the time to appease the culture. Now look at us, you know, we're, we're making historic moves in graduation rates and, you know, creating gymnastics teams. And we have an aviation school at my university where we put students in the air. We just bought another airplane. We have a college of pharmacy. We have a, um, a college of law. We have a law school. We have a business school. We have a world-renowned education program. And I don't think that that was, that wasn't the outlook for HBCUs when they were first, you know, conceived or thought of. So I think when I talk about the HBCU experience, I'm so passionate about it because it, it framed who I am as a woman that anybody that's even considering go, even if you don't know if you really want to go, go and experience it. And then you can kind of think through it while you're there. But I think for anybody, any race, creed, culture, religion, an HBCU will really make you in tune with who you really are, like on an atomic level, but also make you see the value in the world around you. I wanted to ask you this question. So you learned a lot, right? Not, not just within like the Black history and culture, but also outside of that. And George and I, we've, we've actually talked about this, where maybe the, a common misconception that people have with HBCUs is that a graduate coming out of it, maybe they would have to, the concept of code switch, I don't know if you're familiar, where they might have to adjust their uh, the way they were at, in their environment and then having to come out to the corporate America, right? Um, so did you have to go through that or would you say that it was more of it, natural or, yeah, I mean, I'm curious out of that. Um, so again, my mother, the original Dr. Brock, um, my mom raised us on code switching. She made sure we understood cause Louisiana people have a tend to have an accent. Um, she was a grammar teacher, right? Like she had her degree in English. So she was very big on how we talk at the house and how you get out of this house and act and how you get out of this house and pronounce things is completely different. Um, I think as far as being in an HBCU, I naturally like pronounced my letters and words and people were very confused on like, you grew up in Louisiana? Like very, but it was like outside of my door, regardless of attending an HBCU, like I knew how to carry conversations. And I think being in an HBCU, a lot of times like being on the board of regents or, or doing recruitment, um, a lot of times I found myself being the only brown face in the room. And so it did make me feel like, let me make sure I sit up extra straight and make sure that I don't make the other person uncomfortable. When the pandemic hit and the situation with George Floyd, um, I told myself I was no longer doing that because I think that for me, the way I pronounce my words doesn't change my intellect. It doesn't change my my um, experience. It doesn't change my education. Um, the way that I talk may make you uncomfortable, but that's a problem for you, not a problem for me. And so in my two years of residency, I did experience racism. You know, I, it was very up close and personal. I always tell people like that was the worst two years of my life. And what I dealt with at that institution, um, I really tried to fit in. I, I really tried to suppress who I was and make sure that every word was pronounced and, you know, don't don't make crude jokes and don't don't call things out. It's OK. And it drove me to depression. And I think once the presidential election came around, I told myself, I think it was November of that year, um, that I was never going to allow myself to get to that point again, because the purpose of who I am is built in every part of who I am. And so it really wasn't until um, I graduated that I decided to stop code switching, um, that I decided to call things out in the meetings, that I decided that if I'm going to make do this presentation, I'm a president professionally. But what I say is going to be how I say it. And if you don't understand, you can ask for clarification, but you're going to be the one uncomfortable in this room. It's not going to be me. Um, and that was a really big decision because if you look at what's deemed to be professional and what's deemed to be appropriate, typically it does not include black culture. It doesn't include braids. It doesn't include changing your hair. 
it, it doesn't include the long, you know, it doesn't include a lot of those things. And even the definition of professionalism, if you dig into the history of why that was created and what that was, it was just another barrier. So for me, um, I spent a very long time code switching, whether it was as Miss TSU, whether it was a, as a part of my, you know, sorority presenting as a, a pharmacy student. But even now as a professor, like I talk the way that I talk, you know, even now as a pharmacy supervisor, and I think it makes me more relatable to the people that look up to me or to the people that report to me. Um, I naturally pronounce my words and I naturally pronounce my grammar. I naturally have a relaxed conversation, you know, when I'm at home or when I'm with my family. But code switching is a whole different burden that typically it's the brown community having to bear. Like typically we're the ones worried about code switching. They're gonna say whatever they wanna say. I don't mean they as white people. I mean they as whoever's uncomfortable with the way that you carry yourself. They're gonna say it the way it comes out of their mouth. They're gonna say whatever they, they're gonna make whatever joke they wanna make. When they when they make their jokes, everybody laughing, it's funny. And then I started realizing when I made my jokes, it wasn't funny. Like, you didn't think that was funny, even though it was accurate. Cause my, my jokes were rooted in truth, right? We were rooted in, if we're gonna talk about this and we're gonna play about it, we're gonna have a real conversation about what's going on. I dug deep in residency into the word ghetto because everything that was an inconvenience was ghetto. It was very ghetto. And my roommate had to live in this ghetto neighborhood. And she was around this ghetto, and I was like, explain to me what's ghetto. Is it ghetto because there's a lot of people that look like me or is it ghetto because it's inconvenient? Because when you look into the history of that word and how that word is used, different environments you say that word in, it's gonna sting me a little different. And mind you, I moved to Charleston, South Carolina a month and a half after the George Floyd situation. So tensions were through the roof. So it became, it became a mission of mine to call it out when I saw it and to be true to myself because it is very hard to code switch. Like you get used to it after a while, but when you think about the burden, like every decision I made while I was there really made me overthink. What does my hair look like? What am I wearing today? What music am I gonna listen to? You know, I have one of the residents walk up to me one time in the office. We're gonna play Dixie Chicks. We know that they're kind of racist, but we wanna make sure that you're good. And I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, turn it on. Knowing that if I was to play Anita Baker, or if I was to play Aretha Franklin, or if I was to play, you know, the music that I like to listen to, knowing it would make the entire office just like, very uncomfortable, but I'm like, okay, let's do it. Because I want you to know that when it's time to pass the auxiliary cord, we're gonna play some Isley Brothers and I want us to have the same energy. Because when I think about it, I think the sense of pride in our people is rooted in resilience, right? It's rooted in being able to accomplish things no matter what. When we talk about pride of other communities, it's rooted in oppression. It's rooted in making sure that other people are underneath and that you're above. And so I think when we talk about code switching, I always convince people be professional, but don't feel like you have to put on a face because it's going to become a burden that you really don't want to carry continuously. So I personally just don't do it anymore. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I love that response. Yeah, yeah that was awesome. On, on a fun note, um, can you share what... Chumani is up to these M days. I know you had mentioned like obviously being involved in so many things, but um, just get a share on any community effort, anything on philanthropy that you're actually part of. Yeah, so I am working on my nonprofit um, called Making It, and it's really more so based around ensuring that um, young girls really have the proper resources and tools, emotionally, mentally, physically, um, to be able to go to college and beyond. So what does life look like after high school? Um, I see a lot of the, how do I say, um, the idols that kids have nowadays. Um, when I was growing up, it was Michelle Obama and Condoleezza Rice and Oprah and all these wonderful people. And now we have other people. Uh, which are, are usually like we, we kind of glorify um, hypersexuality and we glorify, you know, women being half dressed and, and having to be with someone for financial gain. And I kind of want to make sure that they know that down here in the real world, like that's not always what life looks like and that there are so many other options. Um, I spend a lot of time with my family now. I'm trying to make up for lost time just because being in school and being so dedicated, um, I missed a lot of time. Um, I missed a lot of funerals. I missed a lot of weddings. I missed a lot of holidays. So now I don't miss anything. Like I go to everything. Um, I spend a lot of time with my boyfriend. We travel a lot. You know, we both are really 
really trying to build. Like we both have goals and dreams and are able to support each other. But he always, always tells me like, you got to sit down, you got to relax. What do you do for fun? Like, what did you do this week? Um, and I'm learning self-care. Like I never really thought about that because I feel like when you're in it and you're running towards a goal, like you're trying to run towards the goal. So you don't think about like the hits that your mental takes. You don't really think about like the the lack of like emotional maturity you have because like I went to college at 17. I graduated at 23. I went to residency and finished at 25. So there really wasn't time in between there to really understand myself or really understand other people. So I'm really working on that now, like reading a lot. You know, I love my therapist. I go to therapy. I spend time with family. So I really wanted to give myself like a concerted period of relaxation before I hop back out there. Um, I, I like to sleep. I love to sleep. It's very great. I love criminal minds. I love to binge watch TV. Um, but I love to decorate too. So I love like home shopping and decorating and like doing little things like that. So these days I am trying to figure out what my next step is. I'm really honing in on like family and spending time with like the people that I love. Um, but I do know like when I do get back out there, it's going to be wonderful because I will have had like a break understanding like where I am now, what life looks like outside of college because I have a lot more free time. Um, so really just trying to like find my own way and figure out like, what is it that I want to do in this next season of my life? Well, there you have it. I, I think um, it just shows that, you know, the way you portray yourself and I've mentioned this to George, even when, when you were off camera and then I kept on telling him like, your responses haven't always been like Miss TSU, powerful young black woman. It's been a awakening piece from this episode. Um, so where can people, where can our listeners connect with you or even ask you questions? Yeah. So my Instagram handle is the T-H-E, Dr. D-R-M-A-E. So the Dr. May. No underscores or anything because I can't remember all of that. Um, on LinkedIn, they can find me on Tremonti Brock on Facebook. It's also Tremonti Brock as well. I have not launched my website yet, um, but when I do, like those social media handles are the ones that I use. Um, I do not use Twitter. I don't use TikTok. I just, I'm, I don't know. I'm just old, I guess. I don't really know how to. Um, but the Dr. May or my legal name, Tremonti Brock on Facebook um, or LinkedIn, they can find me there. Now, I'll just say, just, just a quick question. Do you, did you get to keep your own crown as Miss um, TTSU? I did. So there's two crowns. There's one crown that you get the night that you get crowned. And then there's another crown for coordination. They're at my mother's house. She she's a bit of a scrapbooker, so she has like a music, she has this huge shadow box with like my coronation dress, my crown, all of my like certificates, because I won all the categories. She has both the crowns at the house and she loves to show people everything her baby has done. <laughs> so yeah, we, we did keep them though. We we have both of them. In truth, I, th I think she has every right to um, be um, proud. I mean, I witnessed it. I think UM did a lot. So um so that I'm really proud too as well. So and again, just thank you for just being willing to come here. And again, just sharing your perspective. I think you know, people will take away so much from this conversation. So big thanks. Thank you guys for having me. Thank you for tuning in. If you found this episode helpful, it would really help us out if you can leave us an honest five-star review on your favorite podcast listening platform. Also, it will be awesome if you can share this episode with your family and friends. That would help gain traction for this episode and our channel. And finally, don't forget to look good feel good, and do good. See you at the next episode. Bye. Yeah.